This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Human Rights Watch is an independent, nonprofit organization known for their accurate fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy. In partnership with local activists and human rights groups, they expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. They rely on the support of informed, dedicated people, so visit hrw.org kick to make a donation and support its vital work around the world. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar until 2019. hrw.org kick. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. In 19th century America, a new set of political giants battled to complete the unfinished work of the Founding Fathers and decide the future of our democracy. In the early 1800s, three men strode onto the national stage, elected to Congress at a moment when the Founding Fathers were beginning to retire to their farms. Daniel Webster of Massachusetts, a champion orator known for his eloquence, spoke for the North and its business class, Henry Clay of Kentucky, as dashing as he was ambitious, embodied the hopes of the rising West, and South Carolina's John Calhoun, with piercing eyes and an even more piercing intellect, defended the South and slavery. Together, these heirs of Washington, Jefferson, and Adams took the country to war, battled one another for the presidency, and set themselves the task of finishing the work the founders had left undone. Their rise was marked by dramatic duels, fierce debates, scandal, and political betrayal. Yet each, in his own way, sought to remedy the two glaring flaws in the Constitution, its refusal to specify where authority ultimately rested, with the states or the nation, and its unwillingness to address the essential incompatibility of republicanism and slavery. They wrestled with these issues for four decades, arguing bitterly and hammering out political compromises that held the Union together, but only just. Then, in 1850, when California moved to join the Union as a free state, the immortal trio had one last chance to save the country from the real risk of civil war. But by that point, they had never been further apart. The story of these three political giants is the subject of a new book by acclaimed historian H.W. Brands, titled Heirs to the Founders, the epic rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants. And today, Professor Brands returns to the podcast to talk about this tenth time in America's political history, including why all the action in those days was in Congress, not the White House, and why he believes times of peace are way more interesting politically than times of war. He discusses how John Calhoun's belief that slavery was a moral virtue and that states had the right to nullify any federal law make him a controversial figure even today. He says the moralizing of abolitionists like Daniel Webster actually drove Calhoun to an increasingly more extreme position on slavery. He recalls Webster's legendary oratory skills in the days when eloquence was a ticket to political fame, and how one of Webster's speeches once brought the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to tears. Then we get to the man who played referee to Calhoun and Webster, the great compromiser Henry Clay, and why Clay believed that the South would eventually outgrow slavery if he could just postpone Southern secession long enough. 
We talk about their crowning achievement, the Compromise of 1850, why none of these men was ever elected president despite numerous attempts, and how compromise has come to be known as a dirty word in today's Washington. Coming up with historian H.W. Brands in just a moment. Happy to have Professor H.W. Brands back on the podcast today. He holds the Jack S. Blanton Senior Chair in History at the University of Texas at Austin. He's written more than a dozen biographies and histories, two of which, The First American and Traitor to His Class, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. And his last book, The General versus the President, was a New York Times bestseller. Now he writes about three of America's greatest politicians you probably don't remember in Heirs of the Founders, the epic rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants. H.W. Brands, welcome back to the podcast. Delighted to be back with you. Well, Bill, I joke about it, but for all their influence and renown in their day, Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster aren't exactly on the tip of every American's tongue today. Why don't we know these three men better? Because our politics has shifted from one which was focused on Congress during the 18th and 19th century to one that's been focused on the presidents since the beginning of the 20th century. So that we look upon these three men, each of whom tried to become president, as failures because they didn't succeed in becoming president. But in their day, they were the celebrities. They were the rock stars of American politics. They were much better known than most of the presidents of the 19th century because politics, national politics, did center on the Capitol, centered on the House of Representatives and especially the Senate. And these were the three stalwarts of the Senate. Yeah, Congress was where all the action was happening back then. I wonder, what do you think these three political leaders would think if they could see how much power has been concentrated in the executive branch today? They would be astonished, and they would feel that the intentions of the framers of the Constitution had been overruled. The Constitution makes it very clear that Congress is going to be the branch of government of the three that takes the initiative. Article one of the Constitution is devoted to Congress. It's only Article two and three that are about the executive and judiciary. And the framers intended that this should be a a parliament-driven, a Congress-driven government. Presidents are called the chief executives because they're supposed to simply execute the will of Congress. And that's the way it was through the 18th and 19th centuries. Things changed at the beginning of the 20th century with the emergence of an American, uh, full-time American foreign policy. So most of what presidents do independent of Congress is in the diplomatic, the foreign policy realm. And the framers of the Constitution did not intend or expect that the United States would have a full-time and active foreign policy. The rest of the world was far away. And the national government should focus on things at home. And that's what it did through most of the 19th century. And so Clay, Webster, Calhoun, although none of them became president, they were considered to be the preeminent statesmen of the era. And they were the ones that everybody focused on. They were the ones that parents wanted their kids to grow up and be like. They wanted their sons to grow up and be Daniel Webster, not Millard Fillmore. (laughs) Now, before we delve into the stories of Clay, Calhoun, and Webster, I want to ask you to set the scene for us and talk about the America of the early to mid-19th century. If these men were the heirs to the founders, what kind of country did they inherit? 
At the end of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, Benjamin Franklin, who'd been one of the leaders in the convention, came out of the convention. The convention had been held in secret, so nobody had known what was going on. And he was approached by a woman in Philadelphia. Franklin was a very recognizable figure, and she asked him, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. So this was both the gift and the challenge from the founders. The founding generation accomplished American independence. They had created this new federal government. They had gotten the government up and running. But now they handed it off to the next generation. And so the generation that had inherited that gift also inherited the challenge of making this republic a reality. And the challenge included some unfinished business from the founding, especially from the Constitutional Convention. And the two big items of unfinished business were, number one, what specifically is the nature of the relationship between the state governments and the national government? When push comes to shove, which has sovereignty? Does the federal government get to tell the states what to do, or do the states get to tell the federal government what to do? This was left unsaid in the Constitution, even though the framers understood that this would be a potential problem. And the reason they left it unsaid was, as good politicians, they understood if they got too specific, then their Constitution would probably never be ratified. They allowed different people to interpret this thing differently. The second question, the second challenge left over from the framing, the founding of the Constitution, founding of a republic, to the generation of Clay, Webster and Calhoun is, can slavery coexist with the idea of equality on which democracy is based. Democracy, based in America's case on the promise of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, was running headlong into slavery, which is the most blatant form of inequality. Can this last? How long can it last? How can the inequality of slavery be encompassed, be dealt with by a democratic political system? So this was the second thing that the framers of the Constitution, they just kicked this can down the road saying, okay, now it is your problem. We've done a lot, but we haven't done everything. It's up to you to see if you can deal with these twin contradictions and if you can keep this union, this experiment in self-government moving ahead. It seems that at least one of the reasons that this period was so politically dynamic is just simply because, as you said, there were a lot of unresolved issues and the second generation of leaders had a lot to fight about. What 90% of what government does and what people expect of government isn't mentioned in the Constitution. And so this was basically an outline. This is the approach to government that you're going to take. Now you write in the rest of it. You fill it in. And matters that we take for granted, like the idea that the Supreme Court shall be the court of final resort, determining whether a law, for example, is unconstitutional, whether people have particular rights, that is not in the Constitution. And it took a long time for that idea to evolve. It began to evolve during this era. The whole concept of democracy, the idea that ordinary people should actually be able to exercise political power. It's one thing for Thomas Jefferson to say in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. But he didn't say, and they get to exercise political power equally. And they didn't in the first couple of decades of American independence. So When George Washington was elected president, he was elected by the electors, as presidents still are, but the electors themselves were not chosen by ordinary people the way electors are today. And most people, even most adult white males, could not vote in the 1790s. You had to have money. You had to have been a long time in your residence. And so the 
the voting franchise, the right to vote, was very narrowly restricted. But during the lifetime of the three that I talk about, the idea that ordinary people should actually exercise political power, this became the the basic principle of American political culture. So this republic that was created by the Declaration of Independence and by the Constitution emerged into a democracy during the lifetime of these three. Their careers overlapped pretty much from 1810 to 1850. So in that 40-year period, this was really the seed time of much of what we have come to take for granted as part of American political practice and American political culture. Those few decades between the American Revolution and the Civil War often get overlooked. But one thing that I took away from your book is that it's these periods between wars when, for better or worse, we see a lot of spirited debate and political horse trading and the most skilled political operators usually rise to prominence. Uh, Do you think that times of peace are often more politically interesting? I think they are. Because once a country goes to war, then politics is put on hold because in war, you don't have to persuade your opponents. You can coerce your opponents. And so to jump down to the Civil War, the South was not convinced that it had gotten it right about it's the right of states to secede. They simply lost the war and the North prevailed on the battlefield, not on the field of debate. And so there are things that are possible, things that, are, that happen much more rapidly during wartime. During peacetime, You actually do have to persuade people. You have to acknowledge that your opponents have a right to their opinions and they have a right to a seat at the table and they have to be accommodated. This was the golden age of American compromise. Henry Clay was called the great compromiser. And and nowadays, to call somebody a compromiser is usually not a compliment. But in those days, it was (laughs) because there was this understanding that democracy is fundamentally fragile. It has to be tended. And compromise, compromise is one of the highest virtues and the ability to compromise is one of the highest arts in a democracy. The whole idea is to preserve the democracy on the understanding that democracy will eventually get it right or closer to right. But don't insist that democracy get it all right today, because if you do that, then you sow the seeds of democracy's destruction. In those days, like you said, compromise was a skill and a virtue, but now compromise is pretty much a dirty word. What do you think has changed about how we interpret that word compromise? The interpretation of the word is not so much different um, from what it was then. It's just that the values Mm -hmm. that are added on top of it. But I will point out that this generation of compromisers, so as I said, my three protagonists, they live into the early 1850s but then they die. And within 10 years of their death, the spirit of compromise had evaporated. They were succeeded by people who did not compromise, people who wanted to push things to the limit. And so I don't know where we are in the recycling of history. Uh, It's true that I, I think that the spirit of compromise has been gravely diminished. If you look at the great accomplishments of American government, and whether you like them or not, these are big things that happened, over the last 70 or 80 years. So the Social Security Act of 1935 was passed with a substantial number of Republican votes. Same thing with Medicare in the 1960s. So uh, the civil rights reforms of the 1960s, these were bipartisan measures. Even the welfare reform, the tax reform, the Immigration Act of the 1980s under Ronald Reagan, these are bipartisan. But bipartisanship has pretty much gone by the boards. And it's impossible to get so... The Affordable Care Act of 2010, not a single Republican voted for it. The Trump taxes, 
most recently, these are overwhelmingly Republican measures. And so we've lost that spirit of compromise. Now, I'm not predicting that this will lead to another civil war, but I will point out that when the spirit of compromise was lost after my three protagonists died, it did lead to a civil war. Now, one of the reasons it did was that the issue that was most contested had a strong moral component as well as an economic and political component, that is slavery, Hmm. but also because the country was divided along sectional lines. So you could just take the slave South and it could imagine divorcing itself from the rest of the country. Now the big divide is not sectional, but it is partisan. And at least so far, it's not the case that all the Republicans live in some states and all the Democrats live in other states. But I will say that the country is getting bluer in the blue states and redder in the red states. So it's not out of the question that something like the 1850s could recur in the 2020s, let's say. Now, let's talk about these three men themselves. And I want to start with the one who was and is to this day still probably the most controversial figure of the three, John Calhoun. Man, this guy loved slavery. (laughs) I mean, he went way beyond the Southerners who talked about slavery as a necessary evil or the peculiar institution. What did he consider so virtuous about slavery? One of the things that I describe in some detail in the book is the evolution of John Calhoun's thinking on this subject. Mm -hmm. Because when he entered politics, he took pretty much the same view of slavery as everybody else at the time did, that slavery was a necessary evil. And it was, he didn't try to paint it over and say this is a good thing. That would come later. That was another 25 years down the road. But like George Washington, like Thomas Jefferson, like Henry Clay, like a lot of Northerners and Southerners both, it was an evil. But there are lots of evils in the world. And so poverty is an evil, disease is an evil, war is an evil. And so slavery wasn't a peculiar evil at the time. And it was necessary, just as some people think even today, that war is a necessary evil. You have to sometimes go to war and people get killed. Well, slavery was necessary to till the fields of the South. So that was the thinking. But Calhoun's view changed over time. It changed in part because he lost his, he found his national political ambitions frustrated. He ran for president in the 1820s, but he didn't win. He was twice vice president, but he realized he would never be president of the whole United States. So he threw his lot in more energetically with his section than with the nation as a whole. But a second element developed, and that was the rise of abolitionism. In the 1780s, at the time of the writing of the Constitution, slavery was not usually cast in moral terms. But the slavery issue was increasingly moralized in the next 40 years as the North abandoned slavery but not for moral reasons primarily, but because it no longer suited the economy of the North. But once it no longer was necessary, then the evil aspect of slavery could come to the fore. And so starting in the 1820s, but especially in the 1830s, Northern abolitionists took up the idea that slavery was a sin. It was wrong. And people who were involved in it were evil people. They weren't simply people who lived in a different part of the country and had a different form of economics. And John Calhoun listened to this for several years before he finally said, enough is enough. You abolitionists, you're on your high horse. You think you're better than the rest of us. You're not the better than the rest of us. And what he said was that he, he did say that slavery is a positive good. And he contrasted it to what he and others called the wage slavery of the North. He said in the South, we at least take care of our slaves in old age when they're ill. What do you do in the North when your workers get ill or get injured or get sick? You just throw them in the roadside. 
So it was partly a defensive response. And Calhoun was one who could convince himself that things, were, that things that were convenient for him to believe were also true. So he came to believe the idea that slavery was this positive good. It certainly uh, rankles uh, our sensibilities today. But for somebody who believed himself to be a relatively humane slave owner, it was, I'll say it was an understandable response, if not necessarily a defensible response. That's interesting because it's not that far from what we see today, which I think they call the Dunning-Kruger effect. When political extremes attack each other, it doesn't really change their mind. They just dig in even further. Oh, that's exactly what was going on. Yes. And you could see that, um, you could see it especially in the South, but again in the North by the 1850s. And as the two sides dug in, as they began to look on each other as the enemy, then the prospects for holding the union together diminished dramatically until they finally fell apart. You know, they also say that that when you attack an opponent morally, it leads to far more rancor than attacking an opponent based on the issues. So you can definitely see that with the rise of abolitionists and talking about slavery in moral terms, uh, I imagine Southerners probably took that as a personal attack and then doubled down. You bet. If, if, If somebody calls me wrong, that's one thing. But if they call me sinful and say I'm going to the hell, well, that's something else again. Now, Calhoun also espoused something called the nullification theory, which looking back strikes me as a complete recipe for chaos. <laughs> what was this idea behind nullification? I mentioned earlier that the Constitution does not say that the Supreme Court can weigh in on whether laws passed by Congress are constitutional or not. There's no mechanism in the Constitution. So what happens if Congress oversteps its bounds? Who shall rein Congress in? In our day, we've accepted that that is the job of the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court hadn't claimed it yet. It did initially under John Marshall, but it didn't exercise that again until the 1850s. And so what Calhoun said, somebody's got to do it. Actually, Calhoun was not the first. James Madison, the father of the Constitution himself, in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, said that when Congress oversteps, the Alien and Sedition Acts were a blatant violation of the First Amendment to the Constitution. They outlawed political dissent. And Madison said, when this happens, the states can interpose and the states can block the enforcement of these federal laws. Thomas Jefferson partnered with Madison on the same thing in producing what were called the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. And they essentially said it's the states that have the right, the responsibility to determine when the federal government has overstepped. So that was the first installment of that. Daniel Webster, who would become the greatest defender of the Union amid the War of 1812, which really alienated most of New England as flying in the face of their commercial interests, their commercial connections with Britain. He developed the idea further, saying that the states had created the central government. And if the states conclude, if some of the states conclude that their interests are no longer served by attachment to the federal government, they can withdraw. They can withdraw their connection. They can secede. This is Daniel Webster. This is 1814. John Calhoun would develop the idea further when South Carolina objected to a tariff that the national government had passed in 1828 that was clearly against the interests of most Southerners and clearly in the interests of Northern manufacturers. And Calhoun thought this was an abuse of the part of the Constitution that says that Congress can levy imposts, that is, tariffs. And so he develops, basically the question is, who will restrain the central government? 
And Calhoun said the states will do it. This is the doctrine of nullification. Well, what happens if the federal government ignores a state's assertion of the nullification right? What if the federal government tries to force the state to comply with the law? Then, said Calhoun, the states can secede. So Calhoun was simply taking an idea that had put out, been put out first by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and reiterated by Daniel Webster and developed further elaborate elaborated into the doctrine of nullification followed potentially by secession. And that was the blueprint that South Carolina first and other southern states followed in the early 1860s. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with historian H.W. Brands when we come back in just a moment. In the next 60 seconds, you're going to learn how the Flatiron School can change your life. The Flatiron School will teach you everything you need to get a job in code, data science, or design. But they'll also prepare you for the jobs that don't even exist yet. Because this is a school designed to educate you in the art of change. So if you're feeling stuck, bored, or unfulfilled, Flatiron will teach you how to change things. You'll learn by making things, breaking things, and discovering how the future is being built. And the results speak for themselves. Go to flatironschool.com podcast and read about graduates' new careers, salary ranges, upcoming courses, and explore their exciting new careers. You can start building your own new career in coding, data science, or digital design at one of Flatiron School's WeWork campuses, or you can take courses online. Go to flatironschool.com podcast read the reviews, and sign up for a free intro course. Enrollment is open now. It's time to future-proof yourself and change things, starting with you. Flatironschool.com podcast. And now, back to the show. If people today know one thing about Daniel Webster, it might be that he was the inspiration for the fictionalized short story about him called uh, The Devil and Daniel Webster, which parodied his famous ability at oration. Um, he was the great orator of his day, and, and this was, of course, in a time when there were a lot of great orators in America. In fact, he was so gifted with words that it's almost humorous to read some of these accounts of the over-the-top emotions he elicited from his audience. It didn't even bring the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to tears once? He did. The August John Marshall had a tear in his eye at the end of Webster's defense of Dartmouth College in a famous constitutional case of Dartmouth College versus Woodward. Webster had that ability. Now, I should say that this was a golden age of congressional and political oratory. When people went to hear political speeches, expecting to be educated, expecting to be entertained, expecting to be moved. So they went to hear political speeches almost the way opera aficionados go to operas. They want to they <laughs> feel the what the story is about. And Webster could tell a story. Webster could bring all of the emotional changes on his subject. He could make people laugh. He could make people cry. He could educate people. He was the best and the most highly compensated constitutional lawyer of his day. He would split his time between arguing cases before the Supreme Court, which was which used to meet in the basement of the Capitol, and then he'd run upstairs to the Senate and then argue some point of politics or constitutional law within the Senate itself. And so people who listen to Daniel Webster, like people who listen to John Calhoun and Henry Clay, 
They expected to be entertained and moved. They also expected to be educated. This was a time when political speeches were a principal form of political education. And this was high-level education. One of the issues that came up during the 1820s, 1810s and 1820s, was the issue of the tariff. And when I was writing about this, I was really scratching my head trying to figure out how I was going to make this interesting and relevant for a modern audience. Because before two years ago, tariffs had not been an issue in American politics for 80 years. But of course, they become an issue once again because President Trump has decided to impose tariffs on goods from foreign countries. Well, as I was reading the debates, I was struck by the sophistication of the economic arguments. I'm a historian, so I've, I've read this kind of thing in different pages in the past. And you could take the arguments that Henry Clay had made in favor of a protective tariff and translate it to 2018. And it would be the most sophisticated, the most nuanced speech that is actually a speech that nobody in the Senate today could reproduce. They simply don't have the expertise. They don't have the sophistication. They don't have the speaking skills. Daniel Webster spoke. Uh, Daniel Webster initially spoke against a tariff. John Calhoun spoke against the tariff. If you transported them to the Senate today, those speeches would be better than anything we've heard in the Senate on the subject. This because political speeches in that era changed people's minds. And people took political speeches very seriously. People still give political speeches. Turn on C-SPAN and you can watch speeches in the Senate, in the House of Representatives. But nobody's actually in the chamber. They're just speaking to the camera. Well, people, they spoke right. to real audiences in those days. And the word got out quickly after they spoke. Daniel Webster in particular used to make a point of ensuring that his speeches would be set into type and printed up within 24 or 48 hours and distributed around the country. They were actually sold around the country. It was a side income for Webster, who was always uh, looking for a separate income stream. But the word got out, and people all around the country had a much more sophisticated view of the important political issues of the day. These were not the things that kind of can be reduced to bumper stickers or tweets. These were speeches that took an hour, two hours, sometimes five or six hours over two or three days to give. But people followed along. They followed the argument, and they made up their minds accordingly. I mean, it's hard to imagine Americans having the patience for a two- to three-hour speech, oh, yeah. um, especially yeah. in these days. Uh, but in, in those days, I guess uh, oration was really a ticket to fame for many of these people, huh? It was. And in fairness to us, back in those days, there wasn't all that much else going on. There wasn't that much right. else to do. You couldn't turn on TV. You couldn't go to a soccer game. You couldn't you know, get on Facebook. So there, were, there was less competition for the attention of people who were interested in public policy. The third component to all this, Henry Clay, also known as the Great Compromiser, he often acted as the mediator between Webster and Calhoun. Uh, did he relish that role in being in the thick of it, or was it more akin to a parent breaking up two squabbling siblings? He relished it. He considered it highly important. In fact, he considered his compromises the best thing he had ever done for the country. And he was able to do it partly because he was a, a mediating type, but also because where Webster represented the North, New England, and Calhoun the South, South Carolina, Clay represented the West. In those days, the country was really divided into three sections. We think when we look back on the Civil War as North versus South, but it was really right. North, South, and West. And so Henry Clay, being from the West, was this person who was neither of the North or of the South. Furthermore, he was a slaveholder 
Kentucky was a slave state, but he was also an emancipationist at heart. He believed that slavery was a bad institution. Unlike John Calhoun, he never said slavery was a good thing. He always thought slavery was a bad thing, bad for the slaves, bad for their owners, bad for the American Republic. And he tried consistently throughout his career to bring slavery to an end. Now, you might ask, why didn't he simply emancipate his slaves? Because he understood that if he emancipated his 50 slaves, that might free 50 people, although there are even complications with that. But it would do nothing for the other three and a half million slaves. Whereas if he maintained his standing as a slaveholder and argued against slavery as a slaveholder, he would have much greater credibility with the other slaveholders. And he might have a chance to free three and a half million people rather than just half a hundred people. So he was always this man in between. And he, he was able to find the merits in opposing arguments. He was always of the opinion that the most important thing was to hold the union together, keep democracy moving forward. He believed that American politics, American democracy, had a genius for muddling through. Don't try to force things to a head. Don't insist on a final resolution today. No. Get 75%, 80%, get closer to a resolution. Come up with some solution that both sides can live with and can live with together. Because as long as they see that they have an interest in preserving the union, then the union will carry things forward. Henry Clay was an utter enthusiast of American democracy. He believed, even in that early time, that American democracy had delivered more good things to more people over more years than any other system. And he believed it had a brilliant future if, if it could hold together. And holding together required people to retain this spirit of compromise, the idea that your opponent is not your enemy, your opponent has a right to his opinions and to a seat at the table. And the whole thing is to make sure that both parties, both sides, have an interest in keeping this system moving forward. And I suppose someone from the West would make the perfect mediator for this, not just because they were perceived to be a neutral party between the South and the North, but also because uh, so many of the issues surrounding slavery in those days were about westward expansion. In fact, the role of the West almost reminds me a little bit of the Cold War, because without actually resolving the larger issue of slavery once and for all, there was this series of political proxy wars as America expanded further west. Given that these politicians had to relitigate the same issue every time a territory joined the Union, did these politicians view expansion as something of a blessing and a curse? Well, it was certainly a source of trouble. And this was the reason for Henry Clay's grand compromises. The Missouri Compromise of 1820, the first one that he's most associated with, Right. was to determine what's the fate of slavery in the Louisiana Purchase, this big chunk of land purchased from France at the beginning of the 19th century. And the compromise was that the, the compromise was that Missouri would enter the Union as a slave state plus for the South. But the rest of the northern part of the Louisiana Purchase would be off limits to slavery plus for the North. And it also settled the future of slavery in the Western territories. Yes, indeed. The, the point where the rubber hit the road was the question of slavery in the Western territories. Nobody, not Abraham Lincoln, not Henry Clay, not Daniel Webster, believed that the Constitution gave the national government or anybody else the authority to tell South Carolina, you've got to get rid of slavery. No, that was entirely up to South Carolina. The question was, could South Carolina, could Massachusetts agree on who gets to tell the 
Iowa Territory or Kansas Territory, whether they can have slavery. And this was, it was recurrently, not consistently, but recurrently the point at which North and South really locked heads. So the Missouri Compromise settled it for 30 years until 1850. The Compromise of 1850, which was really the swan song of my three protagonists, was over what's going to be the future of slavery in the new territory just taken from Mexico in the War of 1846 to 1848. So it was always, what's the future of slavery in the West? That's where North and South really, well, nearly came to blows. And looking at the Compromise of 1850, one might be tempted to say, well, they didn't resolve the big issue here. They just kicked the can down the road and left it for the next generation to do all the hard work. What's so impressive or noble about that? Weren't they just in some ways shirking their responsibilities? No. In fact, they were doing exactly what they should have been doing because the problem was you could not resolve the issue once and for all because two sides, each with a a constitutional right to its opinions, had diametrically opposed views. So increasingly, Northerners thought slavery was this bad thing and at least ought to be limited, if not eliminated. And the South was digging its heels in in defense of slavery. And under America's Constitution, the North could not tell the South what to do about slavery within the South. And the South couldn't tell the North what to do about slavery in the North. But they had to fight over what was going on in the West. And the Compromise of 1850 resolved the issue for the West. And Henry Clay believed that kicking the can down the road was exactly what each generation needed to do. Because if each generation insisted on trying to resolve these bitterly contested issues, then one side at least was going to walk away from the table feeling aggrieved and alienated. No, in fact, what had happened in the past was issues that had seemed to divide North and South had gradually gone away. So the issue that almost broke the Union apart in the 1810s over trade with Britain, that was no longer a big deal. The tariff, which had nearly broken the Union apart in the 1830s, that was no longer a big deal. Henry Clay believed that the South would outgrow slavery economically as the North had outgrown slavery economically. The North... Eliminated slavery, not out of any fit of morality, but because economically, the North no longer found that slavery suited its industrially evolving economy. And Henry Clay believed that the Compromise of 1850, if it lasted as long as the Compromise of 1820, that is, the Missouri Compromise, if it lasted 30 years by the end of that time, the South would have figured out that slavery was no longer in its economic interest. And that would be the best of all worlds because Southerners would not have this solution imposed on them from the North. And furthermore, they would have an incentive to make productive contributors to their new economy out of the former slaves. Now, in fact, it didn't happen that way because the spirit of compromise evaporated and the issue was resolved by war rather than by the compromises that are essential to democracy. So even given a lengthier amount of time, that probably never would have happened in the South. Well, look at it this way. In 1800, nearly every country in the world allowed slavery, considered slavery legal and and not a particularly big deal. By 1900, no country in the world allowed slavery, with the exception of a couple of Middle Eastern and Southeast Asian monarchies. So slavery vanished between 1800 and 1900. And only in the United States did it require a big war to do it. So there was something in the air, and the thing that was in the air was economic development. It was modernization. Slavery is a feudal institution. As a means of mobilizing labor, it is as inflexible as can be. And a modern, a modernizing economy needs, an inflec- it needs a flexible workforce. So 
There are business cycles that go up and down. And when the business cycle goes down, employers need to lay off workers. You cannot lay off slaves. And this is essentially what northern employers had discovered between the 1780s and the 1820s when slavery disappeared from the north. And I mean, I can't prove it. Nobody can prove it because it wasn't allowed to happen that way. But if you just look at the rest of the world, you don't always have to fight a civil war to end an institution like slavery. Even Brazil, where slavery was even nastier than it was in the United States, when it was more entrenched than it was in the United States, Brazil gave up slaves voluntarily because it simply no longer suited a modernizing part of the country, in that case, a modernizing whole country. You mentioned that everything kind of fell apart once these three men passed away. Is there any chance that the country wouldn't have eventually plunged into civil war if Clay Webster and Calhoun had lived longer? That's a little bit hard to say because they were important for their time, but three people can't by themselves dictate the the fate of a whole country. And by the Mm -hmm. end of this, Calhoun had pretty much given up on the idea of compromise. He died amid the debate over the Compromise of 1850, but he was against the Compromise. And people in South Carolina in particular, South Carolina was the the leading edge of secession. There was a group in South Carolina that was just determined that South Carolina would go its own way. They had been talking about this since the 1810s. They had almost done it over a tariff. They were essentially looking for an excuse to break away. If you want to put this in modern context, People who voted for Brexit in the United Kingdom, they just want to break away. And some people will say it was over this issue. Some people will say it was over that issue. But a lot of it is just we want to run our own affairs. We don't like the way things are going. We think those people in the other part of the country, in the case of Britain, in the EU, they're not like us. They don't have our interests at heart. And so, um, you know, the decision of the South to secede was basically a culmination of 60 or 70 years Uh, feeling that we could do this better ourselves than as part of this larger group. And the issue they latched onto at the time was slavery. But previously, there had been other issues that it seemed almost as likely to break the union in at least two parts. Not one of these three ever was elected president, although they certainly tried. Do you think their willingness to compromise for the long-term good of the country eventually became a political liability when they ran for higher office? Not in the way it is today. To be called a compromiser today is to be seen as lacking convictions. No, that really wasn't the case in those days. Henry Clay was the most gifted of the three, and he was the one who got closest to the presidency. And he would have been president except that it's not that his compromise was held against him so much as the country and the political system in the country was – it was breaking apart and realigning. And he did did try to bring North and South together, and and so – that I mean, that was held against him in other parts. But if he hadn't done that, he didn't have the political base being from Kentucky. And he didn't have the celebrity, uh, the, the military hero status of Andrew Jackson, who could do without that. Um, and so he probably did as well as he could under the circumstances. I don't know. I don't know that a, a different route would have landed in the White House, but it was a different time. And so Henry Clay is not perceived as a failure for not becoming president. He's seen as one of the greatest men of the era for what he accomplished in Congress. Becoming president would simply have been the cherry on the top of the ice cream sundae. But the rest of the ice cream sundae, the rest of the contribution was there. And Daniel Webster was the hero of New England, despite never coming really at all close to the presidency. 
uh, looking at the political landscape today, do you see any people who might fit the role of being the heir to the heirs, if you will? Well, the divide today is not sectional, but partisan. So it would have to be between political parties. And at the moment, at the moment, all the political winds are blowing against compromise. However, however, the fact that we're after these midterm elections and coming up at the beginning of the year, we're going to have a divided Congress. There will be an incentive for leaders of the House and leaders of the Senate to, to get together, to come up with something that substantial members of both parties can get behind, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's immigration reform, whatever it might be. Another sort of straw in the wind is that a a couple of states, maybe three or four states, have basically decided that they're going to change their system of of districting, congressional districts, and do it to make states, make congressional districts less safe for one party or the other. So with these kind of things, and there's also, I think Maine tried ranked order balloting, where if you give people an incentive to move to the center, in politics, people respond to incentives, and they will move to the center. At the moment, the incentives are to move away from the center. But if you change the incentives a little bit, and they don't have to be huge changes, and it doesn't require a change in human nature or a change in politicians' hearts. Just tell them what they have to do to win. And if winning, if people who manage to reach across the aisle and get other people on board can win, then other people will follow their example. So mm-hmm. I'm not utterly discouraged. I, I'm a little bit skeptical. I don't think it's going to happen immediately, but I certainly hope that it does. I hope that we are not at the beginning edge of the 1850s, where at the end there is the breakup of the union. I, I hope we're not there now. I hope we can find a way back. So I'd, I'd like to think we're in the 1830s rather than in the 1850s. I hope so, too. And I really, really enjoyed the book. Again, it's called Heirs of the Founders, The Epic Rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the Second Generation of American Giants. H.W. Brands, thanks so much for talking with me. My pleasure. It's good to talk to you. Thanks again to H.W. Brands for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Heirs to the Founders, The Epic Rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow him on Twitter at at HWBrands. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. I had one today and it gave me just the shot in the arm I needed. Plus it tastes so good, I'd drink it anyway. That's because Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream flavors. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at KickAssNews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.